From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello there. Hey, everybody. All right, so we're going to do some, I think, these are difficult questions, but they're difficult in that um, I'm almost certain that you guys have dealt with people uh, like this and that you've experienced this uh, particular variant of unpleasantness in pastoral ministry. And so I want to know more about how you handle it, how should a pastor handle it. And so let's just start with, um, I want to try to build something of a character profile of uh, what the kind of person that you shouldn't try reproving looks like. So scripture teaches us, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Are there certain people whom we shouldn't try to reprove? Who are these people? What are some qualities we can use to identify them? Do you have any th- opening thoughts on yeah. that, Todd? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think there are some obvious things. I mean, if, if someone is uh, unrepentant, then, you know, continuing to um, cast pearls, right, uh, probably won't be the best thing to do, um, you know, um, I don't know what a different approach might be, but when you confront someone and they are blatantly unrepentant, uh, it, it's a, it's not really typically a productive thing to continue to confront them about that same thing, at least not in the short term. You know, there may be another opportunity later on, uh, you know, um, but I think, you know, in those cases, you just leave them to the Holy Spirit and you, you make it a matter of prayer. And then God can, you know, grab grip someone's heart much more effectively than my words could ever persuade them or change them yeah you you said um repent and that's uh, made me think of matthew 18 and at the end of matthew 18 you know it escalates and escalates until he says and if they are confronted by the church and they still don't repent then treat them as a tax collector or a pagan yeah and it doesn't we think the context of that is we think that means treat them badly but Jesus makes it very clear. We don't treat tax collector and pagans badly, right. but we just have different expectations for them. Um, and so we shouldn't expect pagans to act like Christians, uh, just like we don't expect Christians to act like pagans. And so sometimes we might label someone as a believer that they're not just because they attend church doesn't mean they're a believer. Yeah. They're living according to the precepts and principles of scripture. And so if, um, if we try to reconcile or we try to correct someone, and there's um, an unrepentant heart, then at some point we have to go, okay, maybe I'm trying to correct someone with the wrong standard, that maybe they're not even actually believers. Um, And I think as a pastor, sometimes we take for granted that, hey, if they're in my church, I'm their pastor, but that is not the case. Right. There are, especially with the proliferation of online, you know, communicators and preachers and things like that. There are a lot of people who are submitted to somebody else's authority, but they just happen to attend your church. So they're not submitted to your authority, your, your leadership, your heart, any of that stuff. So when they do something and we try to correct them, we're mystified why 
they don't respond and it's because I'm not their pastor. Their pastor is Stephen Furtick or, um, you know, any of these number of pastors online right? and they're not going to correct them. Or they so. may not even have a pastor. They may be or listening may... to a lot of people, but absolutely. Yeah. Their hearts aren't submitted to anybody. Yeah. So that's where we have to be careful to start with the right understanding that, Hey, just because this person attends my church doesn't mean that I'm their pastor. Number one, or number two, that they will willingly <laughs> receive correction from me if, if they need it. Yeah, and part of this too, is that we don't want to drive them deeper into their sin. Yeah. And I think that that can happen if you push on someone. And so in the therapeutic setting, um, it can sometimes be difficult to treat a person who is, uh, cognitively well-equipped, who's like a smart person. Um, and that's because they're able to justify and rationalize their behaviors. Mm-hmm. They're able to tell themselves stories as to reason why reasons yeah. why the therapy won't work. Yeah. And I think the same thing scales to pastoral ministry and that um, if someone's committed to continuing a sin and they're unrepentant of mm-hmm. it and you push on them, I think that their their reaction is to try to justify and to try to rationalize. And what you don't want to do then is end up building structures of rationalization that didn't exist before you talk to the person, you know, because yeah. <laughs> they're, you're, you've just put them in a worse spot. And so, yeah. Well, and, and I want to be careful that we don't avoid correction for that purpose that we don't, well, I don't want to make it worse. So I'm not going to have a conversation. Um, that should never be the case, but I, I, we have to have discernment on, Hey, how far do I carry this out before I just go, okay, there's no return on this. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that there's a difference too, between whether or not, like if if someone recognizes that there is an issue, but they seem hopeless in regard to it changing. Well, to me, that's, that's really an opportunity for me to bring the gospel to bear on that Mm -hmm. situation, to help them to see Christ more clearly, which is a completely different thing than they don't even recognize there's a problem. They're yeah. just like, I'm doing what I want to do and yeah. I don't care what you have to say. I know what the Bible says, but I, I like this and I'm going to keep doing it. That yeah. doesn't apply to me. Yeah, right. that's, that's a different possibility. Yeah, and so to me, those are really different different issues, different situations, you know, and you treat them differently. How long does it take you to find that out about somebody? Like when you're talking to them about something that they're going through, um, what, whether they're in the camp of they see nothing wrong with it or they're in the camp of <laughs> they see an issue, but they're so hopeless that they're trying to build themselves up by saying that there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's almost immediate. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. 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 Almost every single time I've had the issue where somebody just was living in unrepentant sin. It didn't take very long, a couple of questions to figure out like, oh no, they know, they just don't care. Yeah. Um, And I've seen, uh, I think I've seen a higher rate of that in the last few years with, especially with people that you would assume are believer, uh, mature believers based on their age um, and people in their sixties or seventies that are living in unrepentant sexual sin. And they just, well, but, and they will yeah. justify it any way they can. They know what scripture says. They just don't care. And at that point, I just have had to say, okay, you are living in rebellion to the word of God. Yeah. Um, if you, the question is, are you going to hell? I, I don't know for sure, but I am telling you, you are, you are towing a very, uh, you're dipping your toe in a very, very dangerous pond. And so, um, you gotta be careful. And they were like, okay, thanks. 
and that was it. It's like, okay, well, yeah. I've done, I've done everything I'm required to do, and I've made them aware. And okay. yeah, I mean, I think this, is, I think that's akin to what the scripture is talking about when it says that God will turn us over to a reprobate, <clears throat> yeah, me. yeah, a reprobate sure. mind, right? Yeah. When we are persistent in our sin, in spite of what the Word of God says, and you know, there comes a point at which. And this is a scary place to be, but there comes a point at which the scripture says that God like removes restraint, right? Mm-hmm. Like he yeah. like draws back his hand and allows us to experience the consequence of our choices and actions. That's a really dangerous place to be. But if if that's how God reacts to someone who is hardening their heart in that way, we we shouldn't do any differently. We have to we have to remove our hands and and say God, I'm going to I'm leaving it to you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, otherwise, we just end up bringing animosity into the situation. Do you think that that is an analog to blaspheming the Holy Spirit when a person does that in in the after the manner? So let's just try to get all the way to the to the one <laughs> where Christ says it won't be forgiven. If we, yeah. um, to me, the only place I've been able to land on that is that if you think of one of the offices of the Holy spirit as like an orienting reflex, like letting you know what is godly and what is not. Mm -hmm. And even when, even in the way that you interpret scripture, so in scripture, it's just laid out for you. But if you like Mel, like you said, people know what the scripture says, they just don't care a lot of times. And so where does a person get to the place where they've committed that sin? Is it even possible for us to say whether they've committed that sin? And is that something like distorting your orienting reflex so much that you can no longer see what's true? Wow. We just went deep quick in this thing. Um, Yeah. Here's the thing. I've had people ask point blank. What is the, what is the sin of blasphemy? The unforgivable yeah, what is sin. the unforgivable sin? Because I've had people ask because they're concerned about it. Like, I don't want to do that. And I've told people, if you are concerned about it, you don't have to worry about right. it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that that's the first thing. Whenever I talk to people, I want to make them aware. Like, hey, if you're concerned, you're fine. But, um, yeah, I think the deeper issue with that is it, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, Samson, you know, the story he rose just like he always had. And he didn't know the spirit had left him. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't even recognize cause he was so, so seared by his sin. And so I don't know where the line is specifically, but I do think there's something akin to that that happens where our, our soul, our, our spirit, our senses are seared where we just don't even sense the Holy spirit. We don't even, and that we care so little about the things of God that, you know, God does allow us to go down the path that we've chosen. And, um, and I think there's, like I said, I don't know where the line is exactly, but that is the pathway to, mm-hmm. to that in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't know that we, I don't know that we have the capacity or even the right to try and determine when someone has crossed that line or not. You know, I think I think for our part, we we we're supposed to, you know, present the gospel, invite people into relationship with Jesus and leave leave it up to the Holy Spirit, um, you know, to deal with people's hearts and, and make those kind of determinations. So how do you continue relationship with someone who say you they come to your office and they tell you that they're living in sin and then you can 
deduce immediately that they don't have any repentance there. They don't care what the word of God says that they are in that camp. How do you continue a relationship with a person like that? Um, what does that relationship look like? Do you change it? Like, how, how does that go? And the reason I'm asking is because I think one of the motives for pastors distorting the scripture is they don't want to lose that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so they distort the scripture so that they can preserve the relationship because they don't want to, um, not be able to love people if that, yeah. if, and so, so th this is probably an overgeneralization. I think a lot of pastors will continue with relationships when they know, Hey, this person is unrepentant for a couple of reasons. I think one pastors have ego and we love, we love getting credit for saving people, <laughs> honestly. So I can save them. Like if they just hear enough of my yeah. sermons, if they just spend enough time with me, I can save them. Um, I think that's a big one for a lot of pastors. And then the other one is, um, so I think selfishly motivated as well. It's not just, I don't want to lose influence, but I don't want to lose this person for my church. Um, cause we can say numbers don't matter all we want, but numbers matter to us. That's why we count people because numbers matter for one reason or the other. And so I think both those motivations are wrong when it comes to that specific thing. And, you know, I mentioned Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't say you cut off relationship with them, but he says you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Yeah. So you just change the nature of your relationship. You change the parameters, you change the boundaries. And so when I've had those conversations with people that were unrepentant of their sin, I've just told them, Hey, I'm, I'm still going to love you. Um, you're still welcome in our church. I'm not meeting with you again, unless something changes, like we're not going to have this conversation again. There's no reason for us to meet if your posture doesn't change. Right. So I love you and I want you here because I believe your life can change and this is important to stay in community. But here's where the line is. Here's where the boundary is for our relationship. So I'll define it for him and just say, I'm, I'm not meeting with you again about this. You know, if you have a change of heart, if something changes, I'm happy to sit down and talk to you and try to shepherd you through that. But there's nothing really else for us to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's good. And it's also like, again, we see the therapeutic analog. That's what a good therapist would do if they mm -hmm. can see that you're not trying to get better or you're lying yeah. to them about your current situation. They, they would terminate their relationship or the therapeutic relationship yeah, because a, they don't want to. Well, a bad therapist won't. A bad therapist will keep collecting your right. copay. Yeah. You know? right, yeah. right. And hey, we'll, we'll, we'll keep talking about it just because they're selfishly motivated. Mm -hmm. And again, pastors, we do the same stuff because if we're not healthy, if we're not careful. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the healthiest thing to do is to draw the lines, define the, the boundaries, and then just move forward with that. Part of the, the, what I think the understanding is that allows that to happen less painfully um, is to understand that sermons can change people. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think sometimes sermons get a bad rap because like there are sermons everywhere, mm -hmm. especially with online and all that. Um, but if, if someone's meeting with you one-on-one -on -one and then you, they get to that point where it's like, okay, we can't meet about this anymore. That doesn't mean that it's just over for them right. and, and yeah. their possibility for change. Like it's, entirely possible. I know for myself, um, when I first came to Christ, it was in the context of a sermon. Mm -hmm. Um, of course there was discipleship and everything that followed after that, yeah. but the, the first barrage of truth bombs that came to me, came to me through a sermon. Yeah. And so I think that 
making sure as pastors that we don't take too much away from the sermon in terms of its ability to change Mm -hmm. someone, I think is important. And I think that might be unique to, is that unique to our time now because therapy has become so popular and so mainstream that people think that you need to have the one-on-one to be able to have active change happen in your life. I mean, it seems obvious that it's not the case though, because that's where people like Jordan Peterson has had a huge impact on, on lives. And most of the people he's never even met them. Yeah. But, and Todd, you might be able to speak to that more. I mean, you're in the middle of a master's on On spiritual spiritual formation. formation. Yeah. So from a, like a biblical perspective, you know, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, were people being impacted more by the corporate worship gathering or was it more in the context of, or yeah, does I that think, change you think? I think it's always been a both end. Yeah. You know, like, you know, in, if you look at acts, for example, it says they committed themselves to the apostles teaching into prayer. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so the apostles were preaching, there were sermons that were happening. I mean, we see like on the day of Pentecost, for example, Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. Yeah. Jesus customarily taught and preached to large crowds so that so that's always been part and parcel to the you know the christian experience but alongside that with jesus right he had mm-hmm. the 12 disciples who he was investing in and pouring in and then when we look at acts they were meeting in homes and over meals and all of those kinds of things so it those components have always worked together where a sermon can be a catalyst in someone's heart to propel them toward change and then it is deep gospel community that helps them to walk out that change mm-hmm. and even to recognize what needs to change you know, because sometimes we we listen to a sermon and we go, man, I know there are things in my heart that need to change, but we may not even know exactly what those things are. We may ad- have identified some behaviors that are the result of the root that needs to be plucked out, but we don't know how to get to the root. And it's it's relationship with other people walking in gospel community that gets us to that place. And so I think it has to be both and, and I think yeah. it's always been that way. Yeah, I, I had a... Um, couple that I was talking to this last week that they've been disconnected from the church for a while and there nothing bad happened, but they're just struggling with some things now and there's some questions and some issues and they came and sat down and we talked about it and um, I tried to put them at ease and we talked about their specific things and, and I told them what you just said. I was like, Hey man, no, no, whether you come back to church here or you go to another church at the end of the day, you need to be in community because that's where you grow, that's where you flourish, that's where you find support, that's where you find relationships and intimacy and you know all these things that you don't get. And I think sometimes that's the problem with with churches that just do corporate worship gatherings is that there's an expectation of, oh hey, I'm going to know my pastor yeah. and I'm, I'm going to have intimacy with my pastor and I'm going to have and maybe you can in a smaller church, but I mean even in a church of 60, 80, 100, you're you're not going to be able to really know every person in your church. You might know their names, you might know the facts, but you can't know them deeply and intimately. Right. And I think that's one of the one of the the pitfalls that people have or the misconceptions people have about smaller churches is well I'll go to a smaller church and I'm going to have a good relationship with my pastor. Maybe, but yeah. he can't go to every birthday party and he can't go to every graduation and every person who's in the hospital. I mean, he just can't. He's limited. Um, and so I, again, I think that's the benefit of the, and both that you're talking about is that when you don't have that, then, um, it's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm keeping the, 
the wheels on my right, the right side of my vehicle, I'm going to make sure they're maintained and I'm going to take care of the tires on that side, but I'm going to leave the tires on the left side bald yeah. and you know, yeah. I'm like, okay, well that's a problem. Yeah. And it does seem to be the case that there are people as well who, in addition to wanting community at church, they want to have community while only being at the weekend service yeah. at church. Yeah. And I think that presents a second layer of an issue insofar as the weekend service, we have to have some time at which we're pointed at God, yeah. at which we're looking at God, right. we're focused on God. And that means we're not looking at our neighbor in some mm -hmm. sense. I mean, we can be looking at God together as a community, but mm -hmm. we, we are worshiping God. And that upward focus is necessary to the spiritual well-being of a person the rest of the week. Yeah. And I think that it's no accident that we do these things weekly. I think mm -hmm. that we need to do them weekly. Yeah. And most people aren't doing them weekly, but yeah. we do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and so all of that, I think, I think you guys laid it out well. I don't need to re re rehash it. I think that was, that was good. Um, okay. So let's talk about cynicism. I think that cynicism is um, pervasive in not not to be uh, not to dumb this down define cynicism cynicism um it would just be <laughs> this is an interesting definition <laughs> it is the proper acknowledgement that life is hard and terrible and full of suffering um and it is lacking the faith that ultimately it is good Mm -hmm. anyway, despite all of that. Yeah. So if you don't have the faith, I think that might be even a good definition for faith as like mm -hmm. the, the commitment to the truth that God is good yeah. despite what we see in front of us. Yeah. And I think if you lose that commitment, you become cynical yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's why I tie that's in some reasons why I tied the idea of cynicism to the problem of suffering and evil, because mm -hmm. I think that there's, one of the ways in which we've avoided cynicism in the church is by not looking at suffering and evil. Right. Just, yeah. okay, well, we're not going to pay attention to that. And <laughs> I don't think that's, I mean, it's just not tenable. Mm -hmm. Suffering and evil, they come for us. They're, they're going to continue. Uh, it's going to continue getting worse in a lot of ways. And so how do we... <laughs> <laughs> well, to go back to the car analogy, that's where, oh, my engine's making a noise. I'll just turn the, turn radio. the radio up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Hey, the radio exactly. sounds yeah. awesome. I don't hear anything else. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. There are a lot of churches do that. That's what our doctrine looks like is just everything's great. And if you just sign here, if you just sign up for Jesus, then everything will be good. Yeah. Now, what's weird too is, and I didn't plan on going this road, but let's just do it. I actually think that if you trust in the promises of God, mm -hmm. that it changes the way that you experience the present moment, the present moment it changes it so much that you don't need to recourse to denial and people who are outside of the faith would probably accuse you of denial mm -hmm. because of the way you're walking through what you're yeah. going through. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get there just by trusting in the promises of God. This is one of the things that Viktor Frankl learned when he was in Auschwitz is he, he made a commitment even in the worst of all places yeah. that I'm not going to steal this guy's food, even though I'm starving, I'm going to uphold my ethical standard because I believe there's a reason it's there. Mm -hmm. Even in a place like this, yeah. that's probably the best possible road. Mm -hmm. And so the opposite of cynicism is to trust that the truth matters, mm -hmm. even if no one else thinks that it does, that your standards matter and, and to, to have faith in walking that out, even in the yeah. worst of all places, and to trust that 
even if doing so makes your circumstances seemingly worse, that that's still the best possible road. Mm -hmm. And so that might be something like the opposite of cynicism. And so then I guess the question becomes, what are some Christian pathologies that you've seen in the church that you would say are a consequence of cynicism? And how do we treat those? How do we maybe preserve against them? Hmm. I mean, just pessimism and fear and you know just uh when when our confession begins to sound suspiciously like the confession of the world around us we have lost the gospel yeah right and you know there i don't think there's any room in a christian worldview for cynicism because if jesus got up out of the grave there is always hope and that's not to say that we have to be Pollyannas and, you know, deny any trouble in the world or, or that kind of thing. But Jesus said that we would overcome the world even as he had overcome the world. Mm-hmm. He didn't overcome the world because he didn't suffer. He, he overcame the world because he knew that the Father was at work doing something greater than what could be perceived on the surface. Mm-hmm. And Christians should always have that kind of hope. And so when our confession begins to look like the world around us, it means that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we are looking at something else and we have exalted that thing above the cross and, you know, and, and made an idol out of it. And of course that will lead to pessimism because the world doesn't look all that great right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially the, the more, and we've talked about politics um, in our conversations in the past, but I think the more the more we ple- lean into political ideologies, the more cynical we become yeah. because that is, uh, um, that is their bread and butter is, is fear and cynicism. Um, that's how, um, if you look at, if you look at either the far right or the far left and some of the things they are propagating, it is cynicism and, um, fear and mm-hmm. if this person is elected this is what's going to happen and they do that on both sides and it, they do that because they are trying to um they're trying to maintain their authority their power yeah. their influence all those kind of things it is not for our best interest um it is it does not help us to be more afraid or to be more cynical but yeah. yet that's what happens when we lean into these ideologies specifically um, and I think it's natural to some degree for us to be cynical. That's why that what that's what makes the gospel so powerful. It is so transformational that our nature is to believe the worst many times. Yeah. But but the gospel can transform us to help us see differently than we did before. And that's that really is, gosh, that's the challenge of pastoring people. You know, just fundamentally. Okay, somebody gets a cancer diagnosis. Not, not that we deny the cancer diagnosis, but how do we help them see, man, God's still good. Like that doesn't change the character of God in this moment, but it feels like it does. Yeah. You know, God, if you're good, why would you let this happen? Um, something as personal as that to as, as um, meta as, you know, something big worldwide, something, ha- you know, a, a pandemic, uh, whatever it might be. God, why would you let this happen? Um it still comes back to what Todd was talking about. It makes this question, well, is God good? If he's good, why would he let this stuff happen? If Maybe he's not. He's good, but he's not powerful. Mm-hmm. So if he's not powerful, but 
that's faith. And that's yeah. what we're trying to build in people is the understanding that no matter what we deal with, God is still good and God is still powerful and he's still able. Now, if he doesn't, then that's where we have to wrestle with the sovereignty of God and go, okay, God, I don't understand this, but I have to understand that you're still good. Um, and it's, it's hard. I mean, that's why, that's why church is around because there's still people who are struggling through those kind of mm-hmm. things. And we're yeah. trying to help them see who God, God is and how good he really is. And that's why we get people saved every weekend. Cause there are people coming to this realization going, Oh, God is good. Um, man, my life kind of sucks, but God is, God is good. And they say yes. And they yeah. respond and but that's discipleship, right? Like, Hey, we want to help you know God and here's the process. And as yeah. we get to know him, like our eyes are opened and, but cynicism is a huge enemy to the gospel. Um, and we don't see it that way because people will say things like, well, I'm pragmatic. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, no, no, no. you're negative. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. not the same. <laughs> that, that, okay. So I think that this is going to be the sword that cuts the division between the politically conservative types and the church is mm-hmm. going to be this issue of cynicism. And, uh, blanketed as, or, you know, veneered as, as pragmatism. And mm-hmm. you see this happening with marriage right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on and on with people right of center, the red pill types talking about how mm-hmm. marriage is just a stupid thing to do because of the laws that we've set up surrounding mm-hmm. marriage. It's so easy to get a divorce and it's so easy for the man to lose everything. And mm-hmm. there's a, you know, they always cite to statistics, like there's 50% chance that it's going to end in a, div- in a divorce. And even if it doesn't, you have an additional 25% chance that you're, you're going to be miserable. Like the, the slogan is mm-hmm. cheaper to keep her. And like, that's the, that's kind of what they're, they've been, it's been a bit in the zeitgeist lately. Mm-hmm. And so then what ends up happening is that people who maybe are church going Christians, um, but are, they don't have the faith because the faith really happens when you, not only do you believe that God is good and you trust God is good, but that you follow God as if mm-hmm. he's good. Yeah. You obey. Uh, right. And yeah. that's the thing is like, so why get married when it makes absolutely no sense to do it on paper, so mm-hmm. to speak, pragmatically as, as one might say. Mm-hmm. And the answer is because God said to do it. Mm-hmm. God commanded that you do it. And that should be enough. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that um, <clears throat> I always hear uh, when and we don't have to get in the weeds here, but um, people will say, okay, well, how do Calvinists have any ambition whatsoever to be evangelists? Mm-hmm. Because if the idea is that, well, if double predestination is true and those who are going to heaven are going to heaven and those who aren't, aren't, then why are you doing anything? And it seems to me like an easy answer to that is Jesus said to do it. Yeah. And that's it. Like (laughs) if you have faith should be that if Jesus said to do it, you don't need, not only do you not need any other reason, but you, all the other reasons could be stacked against what Jesus said to do. Yeah. And that's man, like, how do we get there? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're asking the listeners where we need to know. Yeah, we, we have no we idea. Need your the lines are open. <laughs> Call in now. Uh, well, because that's, that's going to be, there are going to be a lot of decisions yeah. like that, I think yeah. in the future. And, um, and so, well, and we continually, I mean, as humans and even as pastors, if we're honest, we battle this, basic thing of the flesh and the spirit and what I want versus what God wants. And, and we are calculating and we weigh out the pros and cons of those things. And we do it so naturally that we don't even do it 
consciously it's it's subconsciously we are doing these things and um and that's the battle of the flesh and the spirit that we are working ourselves but we're helping other people work through that battle and just defeating the flesh and helping them live a life that's in alignment with God and his purposes and his plans and it's way easier said than done it is way easier to mm-hmm. preach a sermon than to live a sermon and um so that's that's the battle we have as individuals and as leaders trying to help other people do that. And like I said, cynicism is huge. It's, it's problematic. Um, functionally, it's, that's a problem in your church when you're trying to turn things around. Hey, God's calling us to this. Well, we've never done that before and we've never grown before. And this is how big our church is right now. So why would, why would that happen? Well, we can spiritualize it, but at the end of the day, it's faith and cynicism and lack of faith. So yeah. um, there are practical there are practical uh, issues with this in churches all over America, no matter how big or small. So is self-preservation kind of, is it like food? So <laughs> I'll explain that. Like with food, if you have, if you have an issue with food, you can't just quit food. Mm-hmm. You can't just stop eating. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, I'm not going to eat anymore. Like yeah. that, you can't do that because yeah. it's good and it's necessary and you need it. Mm-hmm. And is self-preservation that way? So do we have to, do we have to calculate in order to preserve ourselves? And first of all, are we even called to preserve ourselves? Because yeah, I was going to push back on that idea a little bit. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Because honestly, I think that's something that becomes a priority for us. But the more, the longer I pastor, the more I realize um, my responsibility is not greater to my church than it is to the church and that the church will succeed. The yeah. church will advance. Mm, that's good. My church yeah. is probably not going to be around forever. As much as I would love Summit to be, you know, a, a celebrating their thousand year anniversary, some it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Because humans are involved and humans get stupid and things yeah. happen and there's life cycles. And and yeah. so it's probably going to die at some point. And my hope is that its death will help propel the gospel forward in some other way. Um, and we, we deal with this all the time that churches have life cycles. And so if my, if my goal is to sustain, and I'm calling it my church, but you understand if I'm, mm-hmm. if my goal is to sustain my church, then probably the church will suffer because I'm more focused on my kingdom than the kingdom. Yeah. But if I understand, if I have a good perspective on it and say, Hey, this isn't my church, this is God's church. And my responsibility to the big C church is as great or greater than my responsibility to this church. Then it just puts things in better perspective. Cause I don't think preservation should be a part of a part of what we're called to. As yeah. a matter of fact, we were, I was sitting with a church recently and we were talking to their board and I asked them, I said, hey, uh, what is the dream of this church? And they're like, um, we don't know. I'm like, okay, well, who's responsible for the dream? The pastor. And this is a church without a pastor. I'm like, okay. Um, if it was up to you guys, what would your dream be? And one of the board members said to not die. And I was like, yeah. well, thank you for, I mean, I appreciate your honesty, but it's like, that is, that is dreadful and it's terrible and it's heartbreaking and um, yeah. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of churches are. Our dream is to not die. It's right. Like, wow. That's just the preservation. And it's, that's not what we're called to do. Well, and it, and it seems to me, like when I think about the parable of the sower, self-preservation is one of the enemies of the gospel, 
right? When the seeds yeah. fall into the thorny ground, the cares of this life, the things of this life, that, it, that, that chokes out the gospel, right? And so when we are overwhelmed by the cares of this life, it chokes out the, the gospel in us, right? And so, you know, if, if we are being motivated by self-preservation or if the cares of this life are the thing that is taking our time and energy, then, then it, will, it will erode the, the, the effectiveness of the gospel in our hearts. And, and you know, I, so it seems to me that Jesus says, hey, beware of this. Well, another parable is the talents, the, the wicked, lazy servant, he preserved what he had. Yeah. Hey, you gave me this, and I didn't lose any of it. Didn't lose a thing. I, I preserved it, and he failed, because that's not what he was called to do. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I could probably make a strong case that preservation yeah. is contrary to our calling as pastors and churches. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you when you talk about focusing on the big C church, focusing on God, focusing on the gospel and the kingdom of God, these are things that they don't require self-preservation because God's going to preserve yeah. them. Yeah. And so that's but it's scary because then we're trusting God with it. Right. Yeah. You know, if you save your life, you will lose it. But yeah. if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Yeah. yeah. That's all. I mean, that you guys crushed that. So that's, that's well, seems pretty Jesus. clear. Okay. So now I'm, I, I, there's people listening to this probably who are inwardly screaming about, okay, so what does that mean? Do I just not look, do I not look before I cross the street? Um, so where is the line between stewarding yourself well and where do you depart from that and enter self-preservation? I think I'm putting the line on when you stop looking at God, because when you stop looking at the things of God, because you're, you're too concerned about the things on your own plane of existence in trying to preserve them. Does, mm-hmm. I don't know if, that, if that's a good line though, I don't know. Well, going back to what you were saying about you don't just quit food, right? So like, I can't quit eating because I think self-preservation is a bad idea, right? I mean, there are certain things that just God gave us the ability to reason and to, you know, to care for, you know, like there are ways this body functions that we, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just part and parcel of being alive. You know, we, we can't just negate all of those things. You don't run headlong into, you know, or off of a cliff, you know, because, well, God's going to preserve me, right? But at the same time, you don't, uh, you don't avoid every situation that could be fraught just because you're, you know, because I esteem my life over the gospel. Like if God is calling me into a place, I mean, God calls people into dangerous places in the world all the time, yeah. into situations that, that, you know, put them in peril. Like, and if we, we have to be able to discern, is God asking me to do this? And if he is, then I should do so without fear. But if he is not, then maybe I shouldn't. You know, but if I'm certain that God's called me to it, and, and I still say, no, that's too dangerous. Well, that's, that's where I think the, the problem, you know, maybe becomes an issue. I think a, a, a practical measurement, because it's hard when we're talking about motivation, it's hard to measure that. Um, but I, a church I spoke to recently, the church I mentioned a minute ago, I asked them, how much of your budget do you spend on things that are outside of this congregation? And um, they said, well... 
Uh, and they went through their numbers a little bit, and they said about 0.5%. I was like, okay, that's a problem. Um, because to me, that tells you something about what you value and where your heart is. So 99.5% of their budget was spent on sustaining what they had and preserving what they had. Um, and so I just challenged them and said, that's, that is a red flag. And if you want your church to be vibrant, and if you want your church to be a difference maker, you've got to spend a bigger percentage of your budget on people that aren't going to walk in the doors. Yeah. And it's not on um, advertising or promotion. It's, Hey, we want to bless people. We want to help people because, um, they, they wouldn't have defined it as, Hey, we're just trying to preserve what we've got, but that's what they were doing. And that's what, that is a, it's a normal thing that churches do when they're in decline is they start trying to protect what they have. We don't want to lose any more. So what do we have to do? Well, if we want to keep this family happy, we have to sing these kind of songs and we don't want to lose them. So let's just sing those kind of songs. Oh, um, Oh, this family said we need to do this and they're givers. So we have to do Mm -hmm. this or we're going to lose them. And then you've, you've lost it. And so, um, I think, practically speaking, if you're a pastor listening to this um, and you're wondering, are we a church that's preserving? Or are we a church that's trying to progress and grow? Um, be kingdom minded. I think you can look at your budget and go, Hey, where do we spend our money? Yeah. Is most of our money spent on people inside this church for people inside this church to make them happy. And if so, that's a problem. And that's a, that's a, and I was about to say easy. It's not an easy way. It's a practical way to begin the, to turn the wheel is to go, nope, we're going to start getting more of our money outside of our doors. Um, we're going to spend less money on people in the building next year than we did this year. And we're going to start spending more money on missions and on local outreach and on, you know, some things to bless our community and bless the people around us. So if your mode of being as a church or as a pastor, if your mode of being is no longer aimed or aligned with obedience to the commands of God for the church or for you as a shepherd, then you know that mm-hmm. you've gone too far in your preservation. Yeah. Because these things, like you you had mentioned about these things, distorting the way that daily operations are mm-hmm. because in their efforts for preservation. So you can just look at, okay, how am I acting? How is the church acting? Yeah. What are we doing? And then you can infer from that whether or not you've crossed that line. Well, and I think to to bring it back, even in that, that is, that is churches and leadership operating in cynicism. We've got to protect ourselves because God's not going to protect us. Mm -hmm. We've got to, we've got to placate people in our church and keep people happy because we don't want to lose them. And that's cynical in the view. It's not faith filled. It's not hopeful, you know, at all. And so I think, yeah, again, practically speaking, this is, what it looks like in our churches when that happens. Yeah. So let's, um, I want to circle back to trusting the promises of God and then we'll land here. Um, we had, we had mentioned Frankel and his commitment to live according to his principles, even in the worst of circumstances, even where his principles could get him killed. And I think we see analogs to this and like the military's rules of engagement, for instance, like the, we have these rules set out for how we're going to engage the enemy because we know that combat changes things and, and seem, makes things seem permissible that normally wouldn't be. And then when you get mm-hmm. back home and you're no longer in combat and you remember yourself doing things, you end up with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Now that we understand these things, we can have rules of engagement that mitigate against that. And so that to me seems like a pretty good, um, world analog to this idea of trusting in the promises of God. And let me, uh, kind of explain how, um, when Frankel gets out of Auschwitz, 
not only is he okay enough to survive on his own, but he's okay enough to help other people in his psychiatric practice mm -hmm. who survived. And so that, what I want to ask you is as pastors, how has trusting in the promises of God, like what does it do to, to shape and change your, the way you operate on a daily basis? And if we kind of already hit these things, then we can just say that. But I want to know if there are decisions that you make or ways that you walk that as you're about to do it or as you're about to do them, you kind of think, oh, this really is on paper. This doesn't make sense. But I know that I know that God has commanded me to do this. And so I'm going to trust that it's going to come out right. Mm -hmm. That in the end, everything's going to be OK. Yeah. Does anything come to mind like that for you? Well, uh, just this morning, I was talking with Christina Butterworth as our kids pastor, and um, she is her, her grandfather passed away and she's going to be doing the uh, service for him. She's mm -hmm. she said yesterday, she said, boss, I should have I should have gone to more funerals with you and Pastor Dick <laughs> so that I would know how to do a funeral. I need your help. So we sat down this morning and walked through it and I just gave her a couple of my funeral messages and we talked through them together. Um, and Todd's probably the same way. I could do a funeral in my sleep because I've done so many funerals and I, I know how it's laid out and how it goes. Christina's in a different position because she doesn't do them normally and she hasn't. And so she, she's nervous about that. And so I think, honestly, I think the more you walk with a spirit of faith in who God is and what he'll do, and the more times you see him come through, mm -hmm. the easier it is just to go, all right, let's go do that. And so even as we onboard new board members, we have to help them understand, no, 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 this is what we do. And here's how God has shown up. And so this might feel risky to you because you haven't experienced it this way before, but yeah. it's not, I promise. And again, um, the more you do it, the easier it gets. It's like just about anything else in our life. The more you do it, the easier it becomes. It becomes like second nature for you. And so, you know, for the pastors that are struggling out there that are in a place where they're battling cynicism or they're um, working in a situation where it feels hard to have hope for the future, um, you, you build it one step at a time, one little step of faith at a time, you know, a step of faith only looks like a step of faith in hindsight. It doesn't yeah. look like in the, in the moment, it yeah. feels like a leap of faith. And so here at some we talk about leaps of faith. God calls us to leaps of faith, but in, we look back and we go, Oh, that wasn't that big a deal. But in the moment it seems huge. And so I would encourage pastors, take a, take a leap of faith. If God is telling you to do it, go do it and be bold about it and lead with vision and leave with, lead with passion and lead with faith. And, um, when God shows up, then it'll be that much easier the next time. It'll be that much easier the next time and the next time. Um, but man, it's real hard when you've had bad momentum, when you've had things go wrong, when you've got cynical people on your board or in your church, uh, to speak with faith. But that's, that's where pastor you were set in that church for a reason to mm -hmm. lead uh and not to follow so lead well in the in the face of critics in the face of cynicism trust god and see what god will do that's what i would say yeah that's really good i think that you've done well at kind of um articulating the difference between a veteran and someone who would maybe feel imposter syndrome is, mm -hmm. is the difference is the veteran has just done it a bunch of times mm -hmm. and but they had to start and i think one of the ways to almost hack that sense of imposter syndrome is to know that i mean when i did my first funeral um i had been i, I don't i don't even know if i was credentialed at this point um and i thought to myself before i was going in the building like someone died 
Like, <laughs> and no one else is coming here to do this. Yeah. And, and then I thought, well, well, who am, should I be doing this? Should I really be doing this? But then I thought, okay, I'm not doing this in a sense. It's, it's the office of yeah. pastor. It's yeah. the office of shepherd. Yeah. yeah. That's what, it, and that's on God's authority. Yeah. And so when you see it that way, then you get through those first waves. And I mm-hmm. think that scales all the way that mm-hmm. that goes into church operations. Like if you're going to go from a small to a medium sized church, how are you going to keep from feeling like a small church who's pretending to be a medium sized church? Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing it because God commanded you to, to do it. Yep. And so, yeah. yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, that's a good place to land it. We are continuing to le- uh, release uh, breakout sessions and uh, main sessions from the back 40 leadership conference. So keep looking for those. Appreciate you guys for listening. Mel, Todd, thank you guys. Thank you. you. We'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.